Remember how much fun we had going down to the OBI? Oh, it was so nice. It was that beach theme, you know. Yeah, it was, it was a great just place. Driving down Ocean Parkway. The ride was one of the best parts. Yeah, you don't see unobstructed views of the ocean because nowhere in Nassau County has it. Maybe Suffolk, like out in Montauk, but just like the whole drive down there is what made you want to go. The best part, seeing the boats out in the ocean and the bay. Going to happy hour. It's great. Meet people down there. Remember we'd meet all our friends from work down there? Oh, it was great. It was great. And the ride home, I mean, like you think about it, it's just this pristine, beautiful ocean. Oh, the sand. And bay view. Yeah. And whoever knew? Oh, terrible. All those bodies that were found there. Dead body is found along Ocean Parkway. Four bodies dumped at Gilgo Beach. DA suspects serial killings. Now it's eight. Long Island murder mystery deepens as three more bodies found. Cops say remains not Cops find two more victims in Long Island Beach Pro, bringing the total dead to ten. Families fear a Long Island serial killer won't be caught. Grizzly details emerge in Gilgo Jones Beach case. The Gilgo victims let their guards Remains down. found likely Shannon Gilbert. I mean, it's scary. You just never know. I'm Hannah Green. And I'm Quinn Wolf. And this is Crime Coast. Shannon Gilbert grew up in Ellenville, New York, which is upstate in Rockland County. It's about two hours from New York City. Her parents split when she was five years old, and she never saw her dad again. Shannon was the eldest of four. Cherie, Sarah, and Shannon, they all shared the same father. And Stevie, the youngest sister, she was fathered by a man named David, who Mary, Shannon's mother, started dating not long after her first split. Cherie recounts that Mary and David fought often. Their fights were occasionally physical, sometimes leading to the girls hiding and cowering under tables. Mary's mother got wind of this and reported the unsafe environment to the police, resulting in all four girls being put into foster care. Shannon was seven at the time. Mary didn't get the girls back for at least two years, and for the next six years, Shannon was in and out of foster care while her sisters eventually began living at home with their mother again. Now, as to why Shannon was the only one left in foster care, well, there are many different stories. So Shannon told her friends, allegedly, that she didn't get along with one of Mary's boyfriends and that her mom ultimately chose her boyfriend over Shannon. Mary, on the other hand, alleged that Shannon was just too difficult to deal with. According to Lost Girls, an unsolved American mystery by Robert Kolker, Mary says Shannon was strong-willed but unstable. When she was 12, Shannon was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. It is reported that she chose to not take her medication because she didn't like the side effects. Shannon was popular. She was pretty. She got good grades. People really liked her. No one knew about what was going on at home, so they didn't know that she was in and out of foster care or that she was constantly fighting with her family. And what we find so notable is that when Shannon is fostered by this woman named Jennifer Pottinger... And when she's in what we perceive to be a more stable environment... Right. She began to excel in basically all aspects of her life. She was getting good grades, she graduated from high school early, she was well-liked, and she pursued singing confidently. She wanted to provide for herself and her family in a way that was not done for her before. Shannon started working as an escort in 2007 for World Class Party Girls, which was an escorting service. Gilbert adopted a flashier look. She, according to Kolker's book, definitely stood out. Quote, full lips, wide eyes, dark skin, and a smile. 
She was not only pretty, but well-spoken, intelligent, and charming, end quote. While she would sometimes go by her real name, Shannon, she also used pseudonyms like Sabrina, Madison, and Angelina. It is important to note that Shannon did not keep what she was doing a secret. It was her job, and her family and friends knew about her escorting. Shannon wanted to be an actress. She wanted to be famous, and later, those who knew her would actually suggest that the world of escorting seemed to, quote, scratch the same itch in a different way, bringing her attention, adoration, and money, end quote. Shannon was allegedly taking online classes during this time and would continuously tell her friends and family that she was, quote, just doing this until she finished school, end quote. It's through world-class party girl service that she met her boyfriend, Alex Diaz, who she would continue to date until she disappeared. Shannon moved to Jersey City in early 2008 to find more work and to be with Diaz. Her relationship with him is volatile. It's reported that there was at least one physical fight between the two that resulted in Diaz fracturing Shannon's jaw and causing her to need a titanium plate in it. Remember that detail, it will be important later on. And after the jaw fracture, the two were on and off again, as Shannon rightfully could not get over what had happened to her. Her family knew about the incident and so did his. Shannon made sure not to let Alex forget what he had done to her. Diaz was in his late 20s at the time. He was an on-again, off-again driver for the world-class party girl service. The agency was run by an entrepreneur, if we could even call him that, named Joseph Ruiz, who Alex knew because he was the owner of a kebab house that he frequented in this place called Journal Square in New Jersey. Alex would go back and forth from driving escorts to working minimum wage jobs. He kept his work with world-class party girls a secret from his family, and that began to weigh on him. But each time he'd walk away, the money would draw him back in. It was far more than he was making as a security guard. At one point, it was reported that the minimum for calls coming into world-class party girls was around $500 for an hour. But world-class party girls was subsequently shut down. Ruiz ultimately got picked up by the cops for his involvement with the escorting service. Police had been working for about a year to uncover what Ruiz was doing. This left both Alex and Shannon unemployed. While Alex was collecting unemployment at the time, Shannon tried other, quote, normal jobs, but she couldn't make ends meet. The financial stress began taking a toll on their relationship. Fights became more regular between the two. Right. After the world-class party girl service was busted by the police, Shannon began working for a new escort service outside of the Bronx called Fallen Angels, with a Z. It is through this agency that she met Michael Pack, a Korean man from Queens who would ultimately drive her to Oak Beach on the night of her disappearance. Shannon quickly realized that she was at the bottom of the totem pole in Fallen Angels. Right, she was like a total freshman. Yeah, and the best jobs were going to the more senior girls, which Shannon and Pack found odd because they were often older. Yeah, and this is a profession that's basically rooted in youth and appearances. Exactly. So they started getting strung along by the agency because they were the newbies, and they'd get sent on a call just to find out it was a bust. It'd either be a cancellation or a no-show. And it became a waste of their time and money. So this is when Shannon turned to sites like Craigslist. She's now freelancing, and Pac was on board. They actually became business partners now. Shannon would post a few pictures and an ad on the internet, and finding clients was easy enough. Kolker explains their arrangement in his book. In exchange for driving her to their jobs, Pac would keep a third of what she made, and Shannon would keep the rest. The two made a good team. It was an opposites-attract sort of situation. She was very talkative and gregarious and fun and bold, while he, according to Kolker, was shy and quiet. So the two kind of balanced each other out. They spent a lot of time together, driving to calls and in-between calls and after calls. Shannon took the opportunity to share her life through stories during those long nights. 
and by this time, she and Alex had stopped arguing as much, but things sort of felt tepid. Shannon allegedly stopped discussing her future beyond escorting. Talk of finishing college dwindled. But on the night before Pac drove Shannon out to Oak Beach for what would be her last call, a taste of Alex and Shannon's old relationship set through the current staleness. The two went on a date to the movies, and according to Kulker, they snuck in Taco Bell to the theater, and they saw the newest Freddy Krueger movie. Kulker recounts that Alex felt like this part of their relationship was the real part of it. This is what he'd always wanted, and this is what he hoped would last. But after that movie, Shannon cut the night short to meet up with Pac for a job. She met him by the PATH train in Journal Square, New Jersey, and around 1 a.m., she texted Alex telling him that she was going out for a call. This is the last time they would talk. For those of you who are not familiar, the PATH train is a New Jersey train. Similar to the subway, but because it's in New Jersey, it's inferior. Right. Uh, That brings mainly commuters to Manhattan and back to Jersey. Yeah, actually, our close friend lived in Journal Square about a year ago. Um, So we used to get there via the PATH train. We've actually been to the station that Shannon allegedly frequented when she was going out on calls. Uh, We didn't know this at the time, though. So Shannon and Pack accepted a call out in Oak Beach. Now, Long Island in many ways feels like a different world than Manhattan and Jersey City. And Oak Beach feels like a different world than Long Island and Manhattan and Jersey City. It really is quite unique. That's for sure. Ask any Long Islander which is better, South Shore beaches or North Shore beaches, Suffolk County or Nassau County, and you're going to likely find yourself being slammed with reasons as to why one is better than the other. That's depending on where the person you questioned is from. Usually, some reference to a superior area code will be thrown in there. 516 is Nassau County's area code, and 631 is Suffolk's area code. Yeah, and I'm not biased or anything, but I'm really not sure who wouldn't want a 516 area code over a 631 area code. Oh, you're completely right. I'm also not biased, though. Okay, also, just like a quick side note, if you say in Long Island versus on Long Island, you're wrong. You're, you're just wrong. Yeah, you live on Long Island. You don't live in Long Island. But back to our geography discussion. Right. Nassau County is significantly smaller, but is way more populated. I think congested is the word that you're looking for. Yes, exactly. And Suffolk County is more land, so naturally everything is more spread out. And out east, there is the North Fork and the South Fork. Yeah, let me just interject here. In Manhattan, especially in the summertime, you'll regularly hear the phrase, oh, I'm heading out east. Out east is how many New Yorkers reference their trips out to Long Island, particularly the Hamptons and Montauk. And what these Hampton-going New Yorkers are not familiar with are the hidden gems on Long Island that only true natives know about, but we'll get back to that in a second. Right. So out east on the North Fork, you'll find a pretty different vibe than you would on the South Fork. For starters, the North Fork is generally known for its wineries. It's definitely, in my personal experience, a more laid-back country feel. It's not as much partying or young Manhattanites and not as much trendiness, which the residents are generally glad about. Exactly. The Hamptons and more recently Montauk have become very trendy and hip amongst the young people who are looking for the latest bar or the best sunset pic to post on Instagram. And many of the locals who are so not about that life are fed up with the infiltration of these groups into their towns. Yeah, this hasn't happened as much on the North Fork, well, yet. Something that also fascinates out-of-towners is the beach culture. So the South Shore and the North Shore across the island have totally different beach feels. Yeah, the North Shore is super rocky, and I mean, you're on totally different bodies of water. The North Shore is predominantly on the Long Island Sound, of course, with the exception of some North Shore beaches that are in bays or harbors. Like Oyster Bay, for example, and the South Shore beaches are on the Atlantic Ocean. 
Definitely softer sand, less rocks, and our experience way more crowded. Yeah, just going to take the time here to plug our Instagram account, at Crime Coast Pod. We have a lot of awesome pictures of all the areas we're talking about here. Yeah, definitely go check out the pictures so you can get a visual. I'll even post a picture of everyone packed on a South Shore beach like sardines. Right, because the beach, well, Tobey at least, has literally disappeared, so people are forced to sit essentially on top of each other. I think that was because of the dredging that took place on Gilgo. Apparently, when you dredge a beach, it improves the beach you're working on, but it really impacts the beaches around it. Yeah, Tobey, which is how the locals refer to the town of Oyster Bay Beach, is right next to Gilgo Beach on the South Shore along Ocean Parkway. It's essentially all one strip of beach, but the towns split it up and designate each beach to corresponding towns. Right. So if you live in a town that, let's say, is part of Huntington, you would be designated to go to Robert Moses Beach. Whereas if your town is located in the larger township of Oyster Bay, then you would be designated to go to Tobey Beach. So it's kind of like a private beach, but also not really at all. One of the most famous beaches that does not require a town residence for access is Jones Beach, which again is on the same strip of land as Ocean Parkway and Gilgo Beach. The strip is where we're really going to focus on for most of this podcast because to remind you all, this is where most of the bodies were found. Yes, exactly. So if you're going from west to east, it's Jones Beach, then Tobey, then Gilgo, and then the Oak Beach community is tucked in right after Gilgo. If you keep going east, you'll eventually hit Robert Moses Beach and Fire Island. Just to make note, back in the 90s, there were also remains found on Fire Island. Right, so to recap, the North Shore is a little bit trendier, and some would even argue uppity. The South Shore is way more easygoing. It has a more salt-of-the-earth kind of vibe. The South Shore is where you go if you want to drive around with your windows down and sing 70s rock songs at the top of your lungs. So exactly what we've been doing every summer since we've been able to drive. One place we've always loved to do this is Ocean Parkway because it feels like an entirely different planet than the rest of Long Island. Yeah, it's just the epitome of a beach drive. There are cattails swaying back and forth down Wantua Parkway and there's marshy water poking through the background. Uh, You'll even find some people down in the marshy grass with fishing poles and bait. You'll find bikers, rollerbladers, runners, and walkers, and they're all keeping pace along the road on the pedestrian path. Yeah, and a side note, I do not know how anyone can bike down to the beach, especially with a beach chair on your back. Like, the ride down, fine, maybe. But the problem is having to get back. After a day at the beach, I am shot. There is no way I can bike back all sandy and sunburnt. Yeah, I remember some of our friends tried it and ended up needing a ride home. Yeah, I am all about the drive. Right. And when you get to the end of Wontaw Parkway, you'll be met with a pretty overwhelming traffic circle, all centered around the Jones Beach Water Tower. Yeah, and people can get pretty aggressive at the traffic circle. Like, you better know what you're doing because the locals treat it as if it's not overwhelming at all. And the tower is pretty important, too, as multiple remains were found here as well. The Jones Beach Water Tower is, to our knowledge, the furthest west that any bodies were found when the police scoured the area. It's important to note that even within the past few years, Ocean Parkway has become a bit more built up. On the north side of the road, the bike path that existed on the Wantua Parkway was extended past Jones Beach east all the way down to Tobey Beach, which is the beach that's right next to Gogo. And within the past year, a zip lining course was constructed along the Jones Beach boardwalk, and I will hold my opinions on that eyesore. There are a few seafood restaurants in the beach parking lots, but This is not a road you're going to find a CVS or a gas station on. It's just open road that's surrounded by marsh and water on either side. 
Yeah, I mean, with the exception of the new additions you just mentioned, Ocean Parkway is a desolate area. There are some streetlights now, but overall it's pitch black at night. Yeah, I was actually recently down at Gilgo, and along that strip of Ocean Parkway, there are no overhead streetlights for miles. And just a side note, along all of the south side of the road, and along most of the north side of the road, there is not even a guardrail separating the parkway from the bramble and the brush. It goes straight from road to overgrowth. Making it uh, pretty easy to just pull your car over on the side of the road where there are no streetlights and have pretty easy access to all the thick vegetation. Basically, what I'm saying is that it seems relatively easy to dispose of a body out there without being spotted. Yeah, in the A&E documentary, The Killing Season, the two documentarians, Rachel and Joshua, actually drove down to Ocean Parkway at night. They pulled over on the side of the parkway and they decided to see not only how frequently cars would drive by, but how long you had from the time you spotted their faint headlights to when the car would actually be next to you passing you. It was at least a couple of minutes, and that's a long time when you think about it. So Ocean Parkway, that dark, desolate strip of road, it's the exact parkway that Gilbert and Pack drove down in the Black Explorer on their way to what was Shannon's last call. Shannon and Pack had done a few Long Island calls, but they were not there enough to be familiar with this area. So it was really far for them. This needed to be worth it. And the call was worth it. The call was for two hours, so even if they missed other calls because of the time it would take to get there and back, the $300 or more would be worth it. Right, and it would be more if Shannon could extend the date, and she wanted to, and ultimately she did. Shannon was in there for three hours without Pac so much as hearing a word from her and her customer. The John, or client, was a man named Joe Brewer. And Joe Brewer was well known around the Oak Beach community. And not necessarily in the best ways, according to some. Right. So according to Kolker's book, the Brewer family owned a lot of real estate, residential and commercial, further inland on Long Island. Kolker spoke to neighbors who asserted that Joe was the Fredo of the family, quote, in his mid-40s, paunchy and unemployed. Brewer once worked on Wall Street, but he hadn't worked in years. He was staying at his mom's place in Oak Beach and apparently did what he wanted. Allegedly, the place was a wreck, not just like cluttered, but dirtied and resembling a hoarder's residence. He had a young daughter who apparently never came around and he was not married. Yeah, he treated his mother's place on Oak Beach as some sort of bachelor pad for college-like escapades. He allegedly confided in a few men in the neighborhood that the house was just a, quote, party pit for him and his friends, a place where you can do whatever you wanted to do, end quote. And this didn't exactly bode well for the residents of Oak Beach, who had a very different idea of what their community should be. Right. Oak Beach had always prided itself on seclusion and a low-key, life-on-the-water vibe. Brewer's antics were exactly the opposite of what the residents wanted. The residents treated the area as if it really was a gated community. And now, I mean, there is a gate preceding the neighborhood, with a little electronic keypad and a sign that reads, Oak Island Beach Association. Yep, check out our Instagram for a picture of the gate and the sign. Yeah, but the town of Babylon actually owns the land. So the residents own their houses, but they don't own the land beneath them. So they're constantly renewing leases for the land with the town. And what this means is that it's not a high security, exclusive gated community. It's just like any other community on Long Island. In theory, you could walk through that neighborhood just as you could the neighborhood of like Levittown. Right, but the Oak Beach residents don't like that to be advertised. As Kolker puts it, quote, walking past the gate isn't against the law, but 
it sends a message. Yeah, the gate sends a message of the type of community the residents wish to uphold. Yeah, back in the 80s and 90s, a popular hangout spot was the Oak Beach Inn, also referred to as the OBI. The OBI was a bar right on the water in the mouth of Oak Beach community. Yeah, and the residents were fed up with their quiet community being the watering hole for a bunch of drunk young kids who wanted to party and have fun. Police cracked down and many tried to fight for the OBI to be shut down for good. The OBI lovers rallied, fighting for their beloved bar on the beach to remain open. We had a lot of fun going down to OBI, didn't we? Oh, those were great nights. You look forward to them all day at work. Yeah, we would meet our friends for happy hour. Oak Beach Inn. Everyone, and remember, closed the OBI. Yeah. The truck driving the truck up and driver. down the LIE. It was, it was just a wonderful place to go in the summertime. Yeah, there's nothing down, like Ocean Parkway. The drive was... Beef beach vibe to it. It had a beach vibe. And you driving know? down Ocean Parkway, my God, oh. windows open... Music boats playing. in the horizon. I mean, it was great. Right. You were finally free. You could just, you were yeah. out of work. You'd go down there. You'd have a good time. Oh, it was good stuff. People that you know are down there all the time, the same people. It was a lot of fun. And Ocean Parkway is one of a kind. In 92, the OBI was finally shut down. And now all you'll find is an empty parking lot where the OBI used to stand. You know, everyone was there. Until, everyone was in a good mood. Everyone was in a good mood until the town or the residents, they didn't want the OBI anymore. They didn't want people drinking, hanging out. And eventually the whole place shut down and became a ghost town. And the former OBI site is bordered to the east and the west by the residences of Oak Beach. And it became a quiet, desolate place. The residents of Oak Beach ultimately won. And on May 1st, 2010, the sleepy community would have the spotlight back on them. Right. When Brewer, who some might characterize as the black sheep of the community, answered an ad on a site like Craigslist for a few hours with Shannon Gilbert. As Pack pulled up through the gate with Shannon in the car, Brewer greeted the two. Well, he opened the gate and he and Shannon receded back into his house. Right. Pack explained that he didn't see either for about three hours. Well, wait, he saw them once when they came out of Brewer's car to quote unquote run an errand. Shannon ran this by Pack and he didn't ask questions. He just assumed that they were buying drugs, but he couldn't be sure. Right. I mean, the only thing that strikes me here is that you really can't get anywhere, and by anywhere meaning like a store at least. Right. In 20 minutes there and back. I mean, you could maybe get to stores in Babylon or over the Robert Moses Bridge in about 15 minutes, but this issue is the timing of getting back. Right. So I'd say they probably went somewhere local, and by local, we mean maybe another house. Again, we're not sure for what, though. And this is just our local speculation. Exactly. And Pack didn't even get a good look at Brewer until three hours into this call. Right, when Pack heard a knock on his car window and it was Brewer asking him to get Shannon out of his house. Brewer claimed that she wouldn't leave. According to Kolker's account of this encounter, Brewer didn't seem angry or scared. He just simply wanted to get her out. So Pack got out of his car and went into Brewer's house. And going into a client's house is not something he had ever done or ever wanted to do. As he walked in, the house was in usual Joe Brewer fashion. It was dirty, there was food and knickknacks everywhere. He saw Shannon standing in the doorway of the kitchen. Colker describes Shannon as apparently looking the same as always. Quote, chestnut brown wig with blonde streaks, a pair of dangly hoop earrings, a brown leather jacket and jeans, end quote. Pack said to Shannon, Shannon, let's go home. To which she replied, you guys are trying to kill me. Pack at first didn't think she was being serious. He was going to laugh but he quickly realized that she was in fact being serious and she actually seemed scared. Yeah, she wasn't panicking yet, but she was definitely frightened. Pack tried again. He said, come on, Shannon, don't you want to go home? Let's go home. Pack tried pressing Brewer, asking him why she wouldn't leave. 
And by now, Brewer was done with this whole thing. He walked towards Shannon. He tried to put an arm around her, but she shrieked, and then he replied, fuck this. So Brewer left the room, leaving Pac to deal with Shannon now. We're going to read a few direct quotes from Kolker's book here to explain what happened next. Pac said, Shannon, do you want to go? And she replied, I'll find my own way home. She allegedly crawled behind the couch. Pac figured he'd take her word and went to open the door and leave. But then Shannon quickly retorted, Mike, where are you going? Huh? You want to go? Pac said. She didn't answer at this point, and Pac was at a loss for what to do. He sat down in a chair at the dining room table. Shannon asked him why he was sitting. Pac, trying to come up with an explanation for what was happening, thought Shannon must be imitating a scene from a movie she really liked. It's called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where a similar scene actually plays out. He thought she was faking it. Shannon didn't reply. She was on the phone. Pac heard her say, quote, Long Island, into the receiver. Pac could hear that it sounded like she was on the phone with 911. And that upset and confused him. In this business, you really don't want to rub elbows with the cops unless you have to. So why would Shannon, an escort on call, be on the phone with them? This always felt important to me. If it really was all an act or there really was no danger, why would Shannon want to involve the police? She's already had run-ins with the law because of escorting. It, it just wouldn't make sense for her to jeopardize getting in trouble with the cops like that if she really didn't feel like she was in legitimate danger. But Pac felt scared. He had brushes with the law in his past, and he did not want to get taken in again. He felt an impulse to run. He felt concerned. This is when Michael left. He sat in the car for a minute, trying to gather his thoughts. She says she'll find her way home. She's calling 911, he thought. Pac just wanted to get out of there. And then he looked up and saw Brewer standing on the house's second floor balcony. Pac shouted up, letting him know that Shannon was still inside. And that's when Brewer bolted back inside. Pac believes that this must have startled Shannon because the next thing he knew, she burst out the door towards him, falling down the patio stairs and quickly picked herself up again. Michael, who was still in the car, couldn't tell what was happening but thought, great, she finally wants to go home. He called her, Shannon, Shannon. He turned on the car headlights, tried following her down the narrow, dark, and desolate back roads of Oak Beach. He texted her, shouted her name, but she was too frantic. While Shannon was running from Pac, she knocked on two neighbors' doors, one of which was a woman named Barbara Brennan. She and her husband were up early preparing for a trip when they answered the door and saw the panic state that Shannon was in. They said they would call 911. This upset Shannon even more, and she ran away. Shannon then banged on the door of Gus Coletti, another Oak Beach resident. He opened the door, saw how frantic she was, and he said, stay there, and that he was going to call 911. Again, she freaked out, now even more because she also did not want him to call 911. We're not so sure why this would have been her reaction, as she clearly wanted help, and she felt in danger, and she even called 911 herself earlier. Right, so she ran, again. She then saw Pac driving down the road towards her, shouting her name, and she proceeded to hide behind Gus Coletti's parked boat. Pac saw her darting across the dark lawns of Oak Beach, but quickly lost sight of her because, again, this area is so poorly lit and dense with shrubbery. Ultimately, Pac felt he tried his best, he did his due diligence, and he headed back to New York City, leaving Shannon to get back on her own. And just a side note, May on Long Island, particularly right near the water at night, is very cold. Like, we cannot emphasize this enough. Shannon would have been freezing outside. Right, especially if she didn't have on much outerwear because we assume she wasn't planning to spend much time outside. So right there, someone who is alone and unfamiliar with the area 
and they're cold, it's just, it's really not a good situation to be in. I've lived on Long Island my entire life and I would be very scared to be out there alone at four o'clock in the morning. Alex, Shannon's boyfriend, waited around for her the next day and when she didn't come home, he was worried, but he figured, well, she'll be home the next day. But then when Shannon didn't show up the following day, Alex panicked and he called Pac asking where Shannon was. Pac was shocked. He said he just assumed that Shannon was home with Alex. He explained what happened that night in Oak Beach, and that's when the two of them got worried. They called hospitals, police stations, but to no avail. Finally, Alex asked Pac to give him the information of the last John she was with. Which was Joe Brewer. And he was very confused to hear from Alex. Yeah, he was actually uh, pretty lighthearted about it, saying things like, Oh, she's your girlfriend. Is it your job to know where she is? Ultimately, Alex went with Brewer and Pac to the Suffolk County Police Station to file a missing persons report. They essentially laughed in Alex's face. Right. They were like, she's 24 and from Jersey City. Go file the report there. It's not, it's not a problem. Right. So they went to file a report in Jersey City, but she went missing in Suffolk County. And Jersey never sent the missing persons report over to them. So no one in Suffolk County knew to look for Shannon. Shannon's sisters and mother went to Oak Beach a number of times with Alex to knock on doors, pass out flyers, and ask the community if they'd seen anything. Yeah, her family was on top of the Suffolk County Police, but it just didn't seem like it was that important at the time. There was also no press about a missing girl, for a few reasons. There was no official missing persons report in Suffolk County because Jersey City never sent it over. And also, the 23-minute 911 call that Shannon made was never even linked to the missing person, which we find so bizarre because in our experience, if a young, attractive girl were to go missing from Suffolk or Nassau, or really anywhere, it would be plastered all over the news. It just seems like the situation was actively being avoided. No one heard anything about Shannon until August, which is a full three months later. The same officer who came the morning after the neighbors called 911 came back to Gus Coletti to question him about what he knew or what he saw, which struck Gus Coletti as odd because Shannon went missing in May and it was now August. And when Gus asked why the case was swept under the rug, they allegedly said that Jersey dropped the ball and they're the ones that never sent them the missing persons report, so it was on them. I feel like this is a good time to just step back a little bit. So when Shannon was at Brewer's house, when Pac was coming in and all the craziness was going on, she was actually on the phone with 911. This was a 23-minute frenzied phone call that has never been released to the public, but we'll get back to that in a later episode because it's literally ongoing as we speak and it's totally bananas. Right, so this phone call was bounced back and forth between different jurisdictions. To remind you guys, there's Jones Beach, which is down the road from Oak Beach, but Jones Beach is technically a state park, so New York State Police is responsible for Jones Beach, that's their jurisdiction, and Suffolk County Police is the jurisdiction for Oak Beach. And apparently they just don't communicate at all because no one could figure out what the hell was going on that night. Right. The dispatcher asked Shannon for her location and Shannon, of course, said she was unfamiliar with the area, but that she knew she was near Jones Beach and that's when the dispatcher transferred her. When she got transferred to New York State Police, they claimed that they couldn't figure out where Shannon was. The call got lost and because Shannon never called back, the dispatcher let it go and figured it just resolved itself. I'm hoping that the technology has improved since then because it seems like they should be able to ping a phone or triangulate a cell phone call in over 23 minutes. Right. They couldn't have asked some questions to narrow down where she was. I mean, 23 minutes is a long time. 
Side note, when those two other people called, they couldn't connect that to the earlier 23-minute phone call they received in such a close proximity. And I don't I don't really know, but how many calls are they getting from Oak Beach in one night? I mean, the community's small. Right. Screaming girl calls for 23 minutes and then two other phone calls come in about a screaming girl. How could they not connect the two? And then things just sort of dissipated and Shannon became a run-of-the-mill missing person. The Suffolk County Police actually found a jacket when they went back in August, and they confirmed it was Shannon's, but um, they lost the jacket. And then on top of that, when one police officer responded the day after Shannon went missing, Gus Coletti literally offered security camera tapes to the police, and they declined to take them. When the police finally came back eight months later, when the case had picked up some traction, they asked for the tapes, and of course they were no longer available because the community security tapes were reused every month. And we are by no means bashing the Suffolk County Police Department or police in general. We have a great deal of respect for police officers. We're just simply pointing out a few things that seemed odd about how the case was handled. And it could be for reasons that we don't know. It could be because of genuine mishaps. Or it could be something bigger, and we're going to explore that more in future episodes. And not for nothing, the Suffolk County Police Department is the 12th largest in the country. That's a pretty serious ranking. Yeah, and they definitely have resources. It just seems odd how they went about this, especially at the beginning. Yeah, and uh, one of their resources is a 22-dog canine unit. Right, so by August, things with the missing persons report had been straightened out, and Mary and her sisters were on Suffolk County Police Department. And Suffolk Police gave in and they came back to Oak Beach to start looking for any sign of Shannon. During their search, the police brought in a canine unit to assist. So with a canine unit, each dog has a specialty, like drugs or explosives or in this case, cadavers. And the cadaver dogs had searched for a while, but it was August and the brush was thick, the handlers and the dogs were getting poison ivy, and so they decided it was best to suspend the search and come back in the winter months, when it was easier for the dogs to pick up scents and to sift through the bramble. One man, Officer John Malia, was training a dog named Blue and figured that this girl Shannon is still missing and that he could use this as an opportunity to train Blue. He took Blue to the southern edge of Ocean Parkway and at about 2.45 on December 11, 2010, along the parkway near Gilgo Beach, Blue started wagging his tail. And when Malia looked over to see what was there, it was burlap, and in the burlap was a skeleton. Over the next couple of weeks, three more bodies wrapped in burlap, methodically placed in a row alongside Ocean Parkway would be discovered. And none of them had a titanium plate in their jaw. If you or anyone you know has any info about the Long Island serial killer, please contact Suffolk County Crime Stoppers. By telephone, dial 1-800-220-TIPS. By text message, text SCPD and your message to CRIMES or 274-637. Or by email, visit www.tipsubmit.com. All tips will remain anonymous. If you have any questions or comments, or if you have any information that you think should be included in the show, please contact us at crimecoastpod at gmail.com. Music is by Matt Sessions and Andy L. This show was mixed and produced by Hannah Green. This podcast is independently created. It's just the two of us doing this. That means 
we do all the research, write the scripts, conduct the interviews, and mix and produce the show, all while working full-time and going to school. With that being said, we're trying to put out an episode every Monday. But due to the magnitude of this case, and the work that goes into creating this show, episodes might occasionally be bi-weekly. As much as we'd love to consistently give you a regular episode every week, we'd prefer to have a well-done episode every few weeks rather than a half-baked episode each week. If you like what you're hearing, please give us five stars and subscribe. And please tell your friends and family, significant others, and anyone else about this podcast. It helps our podcast become more discoverable and therefore helps us get the story out. Be sure to check out our Instagram and Twitter at Crime Coast Pod. And please consider joining and donating to our Patreon at Crime Coast Pod. Thank you all for your support and we'll talk to you very soon.